All right, one more minute. So um, I'm not actually going to go over all the questions, the answers right now. It'll become clear as we go through, I think, right? Uh, but I do want to draw your attention to number uh, eight to start with. Why do some church fathers think Esther should not have been included in the canon of scriptures? Yeah, Ronnie. That's right. Yeah. There's no mention of... God or the Lord or in, in the whole book. Um, but as we'll see, I hope uh, God is there, right? There's a lot of God acting in the book, but he's not actually mentioned. So I just want to read you a couple of things from, um, I don't know if any of you remember this, but the Archaeological Study Bible, some of us got that years ago, uh, and it had some good stuff. Esther is the only book of the Old Testament not represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls suggesting that the Qumran community may have used, not have viewed it as scripture. We don't really know, but for some reason it's not in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, also, Esther is not listed in the oldest Christian canonical catalog, that of Bishop Melito of Sardis, which was um, 167 AD. Neither was it recognized by other Christian leaders, including Athanasius and Martin Luther, who proposed that Esther be removed from the canon of scripture. On the other hand, early church fathers, such as Origen, Augustine, Innocent I, and John of Damascus, did count it among the accepted books of the Old Testament. And the councils of Hippo and Carthage officially recognized Esther's canonical status in the Christian scriptures in 393 and 397. So that's why it's there and why there was a little bit of controversy, okay? But we're fine with it, right? Okay, Matthew says it's good, so. All right, um, does everybody know the story of Esther? I, I hope, we don't really have time to read it. It's 10 chapters. Oh, that was so cute, I love that. Um, I'm gonna, but I'm gonna give you some background. So, because one of the cool things about Esther is it doesn't actually take place in Israel, and it's got this female heroine, although it also has a male hero. Um, it, take, it takes place in the Persian Empire, and I forgot my pointer, but um, Susa, right here. So far from Israel, it, uh, quite a long trip, but you can see it's pretty close to Babylon um, in the mountains there. What, what modern country is that in? Iran, yeah. It's in modern day Iran. Um, so. Persians took over, if you remember, it was um, first the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, and then um, after that came the Persians, right? And um, we'll, we'll hit some important dates, but um, who was the big, great Persian emperor who let the is sent the Israelites back to Israel? Who? Cyrus, Cyrus yeah, Cyrus the Great. Um, and that was in 538 BC. So this takes place after that, when a lot of people have already gotten, gone back, but the, the Jews had been spread around, right? And so um, the story takes place in Persia, and um, there are thousands, tens of thousands of Jews living there, right? 
Susa is one of the two capitals. It's the winter capital that was made by, um, made winter capital by Darius, who comes right before this story. Um, and he's also the one with the chocolate bunny thing, that Darius, right? Okay. Um, Persepolis was the other capital here. So hopefully that helps a little. Um, the red line is the Royal Road. They had this like Pony Express kind of thing where they would send out, and that comes up in the story, send out fast horses and they could send messages throughout the empire. Um, and you can see it was the biggest empire of the time. Up until that date, it was the biggest. Um, so historical timeline, important things. 597 BC is when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem and he took King Jeconiah, or Jeconiah, the prophet Ezekiel and many others to Babylon. Um, now, 10 years later, the Egyptians decided to rebel against the Babylonians and Zedekiah, who had been put in place by Nebuchadnezzar as the puppet king, he allied with Egypt foolishly and rebelled. Nebuchadnezzar came back, destroyed the whole city, and that's when the temple was destroyed, the city wall, the temple, and everybody was taken off into captivity. Not everybody, but most people. So fast forward 50 years, 49 years, and um, there's Cyrus the Great. He conquered Babylon after the writing on the wall, you know, in 539 BC, um, and he sends people back. Then along comes, um, in our Bible, he's called Ahasuerus, is the king of Esther. But uh, most people identify him with Xerxes, all right? So Xerxes, um, and that's kind of a problem with, with the names throughout, like they, everybody has two names and different names. But um, if we assume he's Xerxes, he began reigning in 486 BC after Darius died. Um, he was obsessed with conquering Greece. So I'm not suggesting you should see the movie 300, but that was about like him trying to conquer Greece. But if you've heard of the, the pass of Thermopylae, you know, there was this narrow pass and the Spartans were holding it. And the, according to Herodotus, the Greek historian, there were like two million soldiers, Persians, right? Maybe, historians think maybe half a million, but still it was a huge, huge army. And they were held off for days by a few thousand people, 300 Spartans and some Thebans. Um, but eventually they got through and they came to Athens and Athens had been abandoned um, everybody got in ships, and they burned Athens. Um, but he ran into this big battle at Salamis, from which we get Salami, and um, was defeated. Don't believe anything I say, sorry. <laughs> Just making it up. Um, yeah, he was defeated, and since he didn't have his ships anymore, he had to go back across. There is a little bit of a funny story about Xerxes, and it kind of tells you something about his character. They get to... Um, I can go backwards, right? Yeah, they had to cross this whole way, right? They're going, and they get here to the Hellespont, and they had to get across, and he wanted to come down and conquer Greece. Well, they built these pontoon bridges, two huge pontoon bridges to march all these men across, and a big storm came up and ruined the bridges, and he got so mad, he ordered his men to whip the sea. So they went out with their whips, and they whipped the sea. <laughs> So he thought he could control nature, I guess. Then they built some more bridges, and they got down. Um, okay, 
So he's defeated. He goes back home and marries Esther not long after that. Um, the whole beginning of the story with Queen Vashti, which we'll talk about, um, that happens before his invasion. And then four years pass, and he comes back and he marries Esther. Um, eventually, he was assassinated by members of his court. Uh, and then the second wave, Ezra, to give you context, Ezra um, in the Bible, he goes back with more exiles in 458. Okay, this is um, what he looked like, our guy, Xerxes the first. Quite an amazing beard, right? Like, they were very proud of their beards. Um, and I thought it was pretty cool that this sphinx is one of the decorations in the palace, which Esther would have seen. You know, She would have been walking by and said, huh, a sphinx, look at that. So they, that's typical of the decorations. And he's got a bow there showing he's a warrior and a, just a great beard. Which brings us to question 10, which was a bit of a trick question. True or false? What did you say? Does a beard make a pastor seem more distinguished and trustworthy? True. If you, if you said true, I'll definitely give you credit. Um, it's, it depends on the beard, right? So if you've got a beard like the um, patchy beard, that's, nah, that's a little dangerous looking, right? Or the unkempt homeless beard, not so good. But fortunately, we have a pastor who's at the apex of trustworthiness. <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> now, Andrew, Andrew might need to trim his a little if he really wants to, if he wants a church, I'm thinking. All right, well, that's enough about beards. Um, okay, the story of Esther. And I'll, um, we'll stop and we'll read one or two chapters, but like I said, we don't have enough time to read all of it. So it starts off within the third year of his reign, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, throws this big party for the nobles that lasted half a year. Um, that's a little crazy, but some people think that, well, what was really going on is um, he's planning for the invasion that was gonna happen. So he gets all the nobles there and he feasts them, and there's a lot of feasting goes on in, in this book. At the end of that, he provides a seven-day feast for all the people of Susa. Uh, meanwhile, Queen Vashti is feasting her women. Um, they, the, the Persians actually believed that um, when they were in council, it was good to drink a lot because that would um, get them closer to the gods somehow. And so there's a lot of drinking. And he gets pretty, pretty drunk during this feast, apparently. Drinking was according to this edict. This is a direct quote from the book. There is no compulsion. In other words, you can drink whatever you want and as much as you want. So presumably they got pretty drunk. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he told his eunuchs to tell, um, command Queen Vashti to come and appear in her royal crown, okay? And she didn't want to. So that kind of makes sense, right? Why would she want to parade in front of a bunch of drunken nobles, right? Um, so she says, no. Um, and his anger burned within him. So he asked his seven wise men, what should I do, right? Um, this is not good. The king was turned down. And Memukan, one of them says, he better lay down the law or all the women of Susa would get sassy with their husbands. 
going to be a bad example. And uh, that one of the themes throughout the, the book is obedience. Obedience at the right time and disobedience when it's um, proper. So um, he's, he's all about, she's got to obey. So he did. He agreed, and they made a law, and she was never allowed to come see him again, right? It doesn't really say what happened to her. So back to uh, number six, question number six. What happened to the previous queen, Vashti? It never says she was executed. Certainly she didn't become a nun or a reality TV star. Um, possibly, probably relegated to second string status. That's the best guess. Because um, he kept her around in the harem, but um, she was never allowed to come before him again. So, okay. Uh, where are we? So everybody's supposed to be, every man's supposed to be in charge. Now, um, Eventually, he gets back from the war in Greece, and he says, huh, I don't have my queen. I'm missing my queen. So they say, yeah, it's okay. We'll gather up a bunch of women for you. And they pick throughout the empire beautiful women, and they all come, and um, they prepare them. They have this one-year beauty regimen. Um, so one of them was Hadassah. In, in the story, it's, it said that her name is Hadassah, which means myrtle or wife. Um, that was also a question, wasn't it? But Esther, the name Esther means star. So her Persian name was Esther. Um, if you said star or myrtle, you get credit. Either one is fine. If you said camel maiden, just go away. Teresa, <laughs> <laughs> right. um, you didn't get a quiz. <laughs> Take the quiz. That's <laughs> okay. You get a deduction. All right. Um, yeah. So the weird thing about Esther, the name Esther, is some people think it came from Ishtar, which is a Babylonian goddess, and that Mordecai came from Marduk, who's a Babylonian god. So they're they're not Hebrew names. They were given them in um, to, took on these pagan names. But Hadassah is a good uh, Jewish name. All right, so she, she was a good girl. She was smart. She was beautiful. And she became a favorite of the, the head eunuch. There were a whole bunch of eunuchs there. Um, I was, was going to make a joke about operating systems, but I won't. The time came for Esther to spend an evening and a night with the king. And normally, um, a woman would never see the king again. It was just like one day, that's it. You go to the harem. Um, you go to a different harem. So there was the harem for the virgins, and then there was the harem for the concubines. And this guy had lots of concubines. However, she listened to advice. She listened to the head, um, the head eunuch who said, uh, this is how you should dress. Be simple. Don't put on a whole lot of makeup and stuff. And, and she took his advice. And um, aside from that, she had a great personality. She was a nice person. And the king fell in love and made her his queen. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and he made her his queen. They had another big feast, of course. Meanwhile, her cousin, Mordecai, so um, when I was growing up, I always thought he was her, her uncle, but he's actually the, um, she was the daughter of his, yeah, whatever, of his brother. So she's, he's the, they were first cousins, but he treated her like his daughter. 
and took care of her. So she's an orphan, which is an important point. Defenseless orphan far away from the promised land, right? Um, he told her, don't tell anybody you're a Jew and don't tell anybody you're related to me. Um, but he would hang out at the gate and get word for, of her from the, the people who'd come in and out, right? And maybe he had a minor position, we don't really know, um, but he, he kept tabs on her, okay? Well, while he's hanging out there, he overhears these two guys talking about assassinating the king. And he told Esther about it, she told the king, um, although she couldn't just go see him, but she let the king know, and they caught the guys, interrogated them, and found out it was true, and, and so the plot was stopped, okay? Anybody with me so far? So now, the, um, the thing about this story is it's not just history, it's really a good short story. It would make a great story. You've got um, drama, you've got tension, you have good characters, an evil character, and a, a, the, the good heroine, um, and there's a climax, and then there's a little denouement. So at this point, um, Haman enters the story, and he's the bad guy, right? So Haman, we're told, is an agagite, which sounds like a mineral, but um, <laughs> probably not. So an Amalekite, maybe? So Agag, does anybody remember Agag? No. Well, in yes, he hacked them to pieces. Because um, Saul, the Amalekites were the evil people, right? They were, they were terrible to the, um, to the Israelites. And so God had um, um, Saul attack them, and de he defeated them, and he wasn't supposed to take any plunder, and he was supposed to kill them all. But he didn't kill Agag, and he kept a lot of plunder. And remember Samuel said, I, why do I hear the lowing of cows and the bleeding of sheep? Something like that. Um, so Samuel comes in, and, and they bring in Agag, and Agag says, surely the, the um, fear of death is over. And she was wrong, because Samuel takes a sword and hacks him to death. So that was kind of gross. But um, it is possible that the Amalekites, some of them, were also deported, and that um, Agag is an Amal, that Haman is a descendant. Um, the reason that's important is because Mordecai and Esther are Benjamites. And, of course, Saul was a Benjamite. So there's this bad blood between, between them that continues. Um, it also kind of makes some sense of one of the difficult points of the story because um, the next point, it drives Haman crazy that as he gets higher and higher in government, everybody's bowing to him and um, treating him with great respect. But Mordecai refuses to bow. And every time he goes by, he just, Mordecai stands there and won't bow. Um, and some people say, well, you know, that's because we only bow to God. But that doesn't really totally hold up, I don't think. Because later on, I'm sure that he bow, bows to Xerxes. Um, so for whatever reason, he does not bow, and it drives Haman crazy. Haman decided the ultimate revenge would be to kill not just Haman, but all the Jews, not Mordecai. He's going to kill all the Jews. All right, so now we have genocide. Um, note that he knew Haman was a Jew because people told him, but no one knew that Esther was his cousin or that she was a Jew. Um, at this point in the story, they've been married, Esther and the king, five years. 
So it's just slipped in there that it was the 12th year of his reign. Um, in the first month of the year, Haman and his people cast lots. So you can see that these are two different types of lots. One, little stones with um, markings on them. Another one, uh, like a die. So we don't know what kind of lots they cast, but they wanted to pick what's the best month and day to kill all the Jews in the empire. And they picked, it was the first, year, first month of the year when they cast the lots, and it came up the 12th month. So 11 months later, it gave, gave a lot of time, which was a good thing. Um, all right. And the, the um, decree was to, um, he goes before the king, Haman goes before the king, and he says, he doesn't say who they are. He says, there's these people who don't keep your laws, and they're kind of evil, and we should really get rid of them. And he offers him like an immense, immense amount of money. Um, supposedly, it was about a third of the GDP of Persia at that time. So probably just an exaggeration. Like He didn't really have that much money. But if you, if you look at the footnote and how much silver, it's tons and tons of silver. right? Um, the king says, no, no, keep your money. It's OK. We'll, we'll just kill them. Um, and the, the, the exact words are to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, because it's not enough just to kill them. You have to destroy and annihilate them, too. Um, so things are looking bad, right? And we get to chapter 4. Ian, I wanted to ask you this. Would you read chapter 4 for us? <laughs>
Thank you. So I think that that's a key part with some great quotations there, right? Where um, the famous one, I think there was even a movie named after it, right? Uh, for, for such a time as this, right? Maybe you were put here. Why, why are you not back in Israel? And why did you have to marry this guy with a big oily beard? Like, who's got tons of concubines. It couldn't have been actually that wonderful for her, you know, but she, um, she was put here for a purpose, she says. So it doesn't say the word God, but um, let's put it. Okay, so that brings us to chapter five. Esther has a plan. Um, so she's gonna prepare a banquet because feasting is what they do, right? And um, she approaches the king. So she took the three days. Everybody fasts and prays for three days. And then she goes before the king. And he does extend a, send a scepter. His heart goes out to her. And this is, this is Xerxes again. I thought that was pretty cool because he's actually holding the scepter. And there it is. So that very scepter he extended out to her and um, said, what is it? And then because they do this whole hyperbole thing, he says, hey, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. And I don't think he really meant it. He said, yeah, I'll take the Western half. That sounds good. <laughs> but um, she doesn't, because this is the way you do things, she doesn't come right out and say, this is what I want. She says, hey, come to a feast. I want to give you a, a banquet. And, and Haman, too. And of course, Haman, this is great, because like, wow, I'm with the king and the queen. Um, so they go to this private feast. After she had softened them up with the feast, she requested another feast because he says, so what is it? What do you want? I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. And she, um, so you have to think about this. Was this a wise move or a foolish move? Because um, when you see what happens next, it could have been disastrous, right? She doesn't tell him yet. She says, come back next day and we'll have another feast. And then I promise I'll tell you. Um, Haman is psyched. He considered himself a favorite with the queen. But when he passed Mordecai, Mordecai, quote, neither rose nor trembled before him. It would be cool if people trembled before you, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just shake when they go by. But no, he didn't tremble. He told his wife and his friends all about his treasures and his honors, and he says, I have this, and then I'm so... But nothing, it doesn't mean anything to me, because that... Stupid Mordecai refuses to bow down to me. And so the world is dark in his eyes because of, because of Mordecai, which is pretty sad, right? He's got to have everybody bowing down to him. So his wife, Zeresh, helpfully suggested having a 75-foot gallows built. <laughs> I said, why didn't I think of that? And asking the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. So there's the tension, right? It could be too late by the time... Esther gets around to putting in her request, Mordecai could be dead. Um, so he does. He has the, has the gallows made, and um, what happens? Ha-ha. That night, the king couldn't sleep. To help induce drowsiness, he had them read from the book of memorable deeds. After a long night, they got to the part about Mordecai taking... Um, foiling the assassination plot. And the king asked, well, how did he get rewarded? And they said, well, nothing, really. We didn't give him anything. He said, huh, that's not good. Just then, Haman shows up. And 
he doesn't show up in the inner court because you're not allowed to go to the inner court. He's in the outer court. And the king says, well, who's out there in the outer court? And archaeologists, archaeologists have actually found these courts, and there, there are three courts. It was this huge, huge, like, 10-acre palace, which is kind of cool. Um, so there's, he's, they say, well, Haman's out there. And he says, bring him in. Um, and when Haman comes in, he says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? He asks Haman. And of course, Haman thinks, ha, ah, that's me. Well, what would I like? Well, uh, what he wants above all is adulation, right? People, so he says, ah, let's give him, um, take one of the robes the king has worn and the king's horse and put this guy on it and give him a nice headdress, this crown thing, and um, lead him through, get somebody important to lead him through the city and have everybody cheer and then say, this is what is done to the man whom the king wants to honor. And he says, great, that's a great idea. You do that for Mordecai. And that, of course, is mortifying for him. So, but he had to do it because it was a command. And then it says he covered his face and he went home and he's all depressed, and he tells his wife, and she helpfully says, which there's a typo there, sorry, if Mordecai is of the Jewish faith, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall if he is Jewish. So you're doomed, sorry. <laughs> um, now, Esther springs his trap, her trap. Um, after the second feast, so now they have the feast, the three of them again, and the king's getting polluthered again. Um, and he says, because that's what they did, um, he says, what do you want? And she says, um, I want my life, please. He says, you know, if we had, my people had just been sold into slavery, that would be fine, because I wouldn't complain if the loss is greater to you than to us. More hyperbole, I think, but... Um, we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. When the king asked who dared to do this, she replied, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And she points at, it's a great moment, right? And um, the king, of course, he turns his back and he walks into the garden dramatically and walks around. Meanwhile, Esther and Haman are there together and Haman decides he's got to plead for his life. And you know how, like in the Odyssey, they would go up and they'd grab them by the knees and, and beg for mercy? And I, I think he did something like that. Because just then the king comes back and he's like falling on Esther. And the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And that was it. So they, the eunuchs come in and they cover his, his face because he's doomed. And they take him out and they hang him on the gallows, which he had made for Mordecai. Because the eunuchs say, hey, guess what? He made a gallows. So um, we, when we think gallows, we think of hanging by the neck, right? But it actually, um, they didn't do that. They probably executed him and then stuck him on a big stake. That it's, um, if you look at the footnotes, it talks about or suspended on a stake. They were into um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, OK, so he's up there like a bug on a, on a pin. Furthermore, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so then the king gives Haman's house to Esther, because Haman is cursed now. Um, and then she tells him Mordecai is her cousin. 
and he gives Mordecai his signet ring, which is a big deal, because that's what you um, put in the seal for laws, right? Um, and he had taken it back from Haman before they impaled him. So. All right, we're almost done here. Salvation for the Jews. So now, the problem is that, at least in, in the book of Esther, once a law is made, you can't countermand the law. You can't just erase it. Um, so Esther goes to the king now and says, um, can you get rid of, can you revoke Haman's order? And instead he says, well, you and, and Mordecai, you write whatever you want, and you can seal it with my seal, and we'll send it out to the whole province. Um, but he doesn't get rid of the original order. What he does instead is they write this order that um, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any that might attack them and to plunder their goods. So <clears throat> they, they have the king's blessing now and they can, can gather and arm themselves. And presumably then the soldiers will help them because the king is clearly on their side. All right? Um, and then the, the, um, the Bible goes on to say at this point, I'm going to read this little bit. Uh, chapter 8. It's um, chapter 8, verse uh, 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every feast, province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Okay. Um, in the 12th month, on the 13th day, it arrived, the day of the supposed massacre, the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them, and no one could stand against them. Now, Esther comes before the king yet again, and he says, now what do you want? I gave you Haman's house, and it defended um, throughout the, the empire, and she says, can we just have one more day in Susa to defeat our enemies, to make sure they're all dead? So 500 had already been killed, and he says, sure, one more day. Um, and also, she asks, can we hang Haman's 10 sons on a gallows? Because they were all killed. They had been killed during this, um, the fight. And he says, sure. So they hang them, too. <laughs> Seems a little bloodthirsty, but they were already dead. Why would she do that, by the way? Why do you think she would ask for the bodies to be displayed? Yeah, it's an object lesson, right? And so they, they were a lot less squeamish than we were back then. But I think it's, yeah, it's a warning. And everybody's going to remember that. The king is on the side of the Jews, and this is what happens. So, so the results. We get to the last um, two chapters. 800 enemies of the Jews in Susa were killed. 500 the first day, 300 the next. And throughout the provinces, 75,000 were killed. Yet... 
the Jews laid no hands on the plunder, although the decree said they could. They could take all the stuff. They didn't. They didn't touch any of it. I think that's really important. Um, it wasn't about plundering and, and getting an advantage. It was about protecting themselves. On the next day, the 14th, the Jews in the provinces feasted. That day has ever after been celebrated as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So that's actually in the, in the story. It, it talks about, because um, the end of the story is about how the Feast of Purim developed. And that was another question. It's Purim, right? Not Mazel Tov. Um, so they called, why did they call it Purim? Because the, the die or lots that they cast were called Pur. And the plural is Purim, okay? Um, Mordecai and Esther wrote another commandment uh, in writing that, they, that all the Jews throughout the, the empire celebrate the 14th and 15th together, and they called these days Purim. Uh, meanwhile, Mordecai became super powerful until he was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. So um, who else did that happen to? Who else have we studied who... Joseph, yeah. It's a nice little tie-in to, to Joseph and how um, he was a slave. And, well, not, he was a slave, but he was also in, in prison, and he ends up being second in rank. Mordecai was this close to being impaled, and um, he ends up second in rank in the kingdom, and God preserves his people. So you can see why this is such a, a huge, important story. Um, it's not as big as the Exodus, but it's still... It, it could have been a genocide of tens of thousands, and, and God preserved them. Um, the Hebrew at the bottom says Purim. So what, what are the three big things that, there have to be three, and they had to alliterate, so this was difficult. The three things that Esther has going for her in this story. Faith is definitely one. That doesn't alliterate, unfortunately, but so we'll just throw that up. Um, yeah, she had to have faith in God's providence. Because um, what, what are some places where you see God's providence in, in this story? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's not a coincidence, right? The king has a sleepless night, and he, it comes into his mind, hey, let's read the Chronicles, right? And, and so that saves, saves uh, Mordecai right there. What else? Jay. So that, how, he falls into the trap, he falls into the trap. yeah, very good. Yeah. That's right. No, you're right. And yet he's got such a great situation. And she starts out, like I said, an orphan and, and um, far, oh, far from her homeland. And yet she doesn't whine. You're right. She's never a victim. Isaac, you had a... Yes, thank you. It, that gave them a lot of time to prepare, right? 11 months. It could have been the next month, and that would have been tough. But um, God arranged it so that... They, there was plenty of time to do all that. Yeah, of course. 
Say it again. Right, that she was even made queen. Um, and, and I kind of hinted at this, that one reason she was made queen is, is that she um, listened to advice. She was good at advice. Another reason was that she was pulchritudinous, right? Let's not discount. She was beautiful. So um, first thing she had going for her, yes? Yeah, and it, it makes you think a little of Daniel, right? Somebody was saying something. Who said that? Oh. Um, you know how Daniel, um, he didn't do all the, he didn't eat all the fancy foods and stuff, and he wanted, um, presumably he got up and ran three miles every morning and ate good, healthy food. Um, he didn't do what all the, the rich people were. He stuck to his, um, but she was very honest. She was a, a good person, but she was also pretty, I think. They wouldn't have picked her if she hadn't been beautiful. So I only bring that up because um, we can't all be pulchritudinous, can we? But we all have some, we all have gifts, we all have things. So um, the last part I want to think um, about how this applies to us, right? Not going to be in this situation at all, but, but we can, she used the gifts that God gave her, 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 um, Loyalty to her cousin, her honesty, and her beauty. Um, also, pliability. That was a bit of a stretch, because, but I couldn't find a good key one. She had courage. Uh, but she was pliable in that when the eunuch said, this is what you should do, she said, OK, I'll take good advice. When Mordecai said, you've got to go in and talk to the king, even if it's going to mean your death. You've got you to try. She did it, right? She, she um, obeyed her cousin, who treated her like a daughter. Um, so that's what I mean by pliability. And then, of course, providence. Uh, were there any things that might have made her doubt the things that God was with her? No. Yeah. So that, that was a key point, I thought, for us, too, is that um, there, there's power in corporate fasting and prayer. 
and as we're trying to figure out whether we should move by a building or something, seemed like a good idea. It's not the same as being slaughtered and impaled, but it's an important, important decision. And she does three days of, of fasting and prayer. And um, she, she also reminds me of, um, you know, Joshua says, be strong and courageous. She is, she is definitely courageous. But she couldn't have known how things were going to turn out. And another um, example of providence is the fact that um, the fear of the Jews pervaded all the enemies throughout. And you know, in battle, that when you're terrified, that's, that's bad. It's, it's a lot about um, who's got the, uh, the mental upper hand. And, and they did. So God, God did that. He cast, struck them with fear of the enemies. Um, just about time. So the, the, um, we didn't answer question two. The woman who was supposed to die after spending a night with the ruler but saved her life by telling him stories. That was a trick question because it was certainly not Esther. It was Scheherazade. The Thousand One Nights, right? The Arabian Nights. So if you haven't read it, you should read that. You got it right. Yes, okay. Excellent. <laughs> um, I think I answered all the others. Except number one is Haman. There they are, Haman Tashin, which means <coughs> Haman's ears. <laughs> Makes you want to eat some, right? <laughs> He's not in the story. Famous Amos, come on. So I think we even had some of these last year for a snack. It would have been nice if we had them today, but um, in God's providence, we did not. However, that's my transition to snack time. <laughs> What? Yeah, three was um, either star, Esther means star, and Hadassah means myrtle. Okay, any questions, comments, concerns? No? Good. Okay. Um, well, let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for um, this example from the scriptures of a very brave woman and uh, a wise cousin man. And thank you for your, your protection and providence of your people. And um, I thank you for the, uh, that even though it was so, so many years ago, the lessons are still fresh for us. Help us to be um, courageous. Help us to use the gifts you give us, have given us, and help us to um, really trust and rely on you and to pray um, assiduously and um, thank you for the chance to listen to more of your words later after we have snack. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>